Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Somewhere live in the San Fernando Valley, in the hills of whatever we are, in the hills of... And what does he call this place? Burl calls this place our uh, gleaming, streamline, uh, uh, whatever it is, kind of studio, which is couldn't be closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Howard Lapidus. Uh, Burl Bear is in a cab in Van Nuys. So if you, you can uh, get a GPS on him, that would be uh, much helpful. Uh, this is true crime. Uh, and um, why not? Why not continue the show? Burlis. Burlis. Uh, the imaginary pearl there. That's right. Because you know what, Mark, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is with me today. And and we do have a guest who's waiting to talk to us. And we'll get to her when we want. And your headphones are up way too Way too loud, yeah. Okay. Well, I was too busy doing many other things other than paying attention to what I should. This is much better. Anyway, um, our show, of course, is produced by the legendary Magic Matt Allen. On the Outlaw Radio Network. Thank you. Um, Matthew, uh, is our guest ready and waiting for us? Yes. Yes, she is. Our guest would be... Hello. Hello, guest. Hello, hello, hello. Hello once. Hello, hi. Oh, there you are. Yeah, hi. I'm Kristen Casey. And, and I'm Howard Lapidus, and we've got Mark C.G. Boyer here. Burl Bears in a cab somewhere in Van Nuys. <laughs> so, so our decision was, you know what, uh, Kristen, we're, we're going to uh, go on without him. The heck with it. Uh, you and I have spoke before on Outlaw Radio. Uh, I believe Mark may have been involved in that. So you know what? The three of us will talk for a little while. And when Burl gets here, he'll ask the very same questions we asked. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'll be very practiced. Uh, they'll roll right off my tongue. The answers will... That will, um, that will be a good right thing. There. That will, will yeah. be a good thing. Rock Monster is the name of the book. Tell us right. about your book. Tell us about yourself, because I already know. But let, let's uh, let, let the audience know. Okay. Well, uh, yes, my book is named Rock Monster, and uh, I'll explain that name in a minute. It's a memoir. It's an addiction memoir, but it also takes place during the time and details my relationship with uh, rock legend guitarist Joe Walsh of the Eagles and... Um, with a massive solo career as well. And uh, that would be back in the late 80s, um, early and mid 90s. So, so you, were after, yeah. you were after the James game. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have the distinction of being with Joe during his darkest years. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and he, and I would say he was with me for most of mine. Um, we met in '88, and he um, had broken up with the Eagles and was doing. The, he was on the Gottney Gum tour, and um, in the time that we were together, he also did the Ordinary Average Guy album. Right. And uh, and I was with him. We broke up briefly, and then we got back together, coincidentally, the very same night that the Eagles sort of did their intervention and um, talked him into going to rehab. So my last year with him was during the Hell Freezes Over tour um, when the Eagles reunited and, and had their smashing comeback. So but the book is essentially about addiction. It's about my addiction, but um, taken further, it's about dependency. Because, you know, addiction and drugs and alcohol or whatever it is a person can be addicted to, whether that's sex or gambling or food or working or whatever, um, it's all just a symptom of, uh, you know, a, um, a longstanding inner dysfunction. And so I had a dependency. I, w I was prone to become dependent on substances and also on my boyfriend and on my relationship. And my identity was dependent on this um, partner of mine who was, you know, had a very big personality and a big life. And so the book details sort of a seven, well, it's really about a nine-year journey of um, uh, mostly of our relationship and then when we split up and how I was just completely lost um, having depended so much on him and drugs that I spiraled and decided to just go ahead and kill myself and so there's a little bit of a intense alcoholic spiral in the end and then um, spoiler alert I live and I got sober um, but yeah so it's about those two things it's really about more than anything the two threads of dependency my dependency on Joe for my identity and my well-being and my dependency on drugs and alcohol was there ever any good times with Joe if you really I mean that, that oh, weren't yeah. late weren't laced with drugs oh yeah no it's some of the best times of my life by far in fact you know 
you hear it if you um, if you're in recovery long enough, you will hear somebody, if not many people, say. You know, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day out there drinking and using. And I'm just, I think that's crap, man. If you weren't having a blast, you you know, you were doing it wrong. And I, Joe and I had huge fun. Like, it was, he, you know, it was sort of a fairy tale for me. I, you know, I fell in love the night we met. I didn't know who he was. He was just some musician. I thought he was maybe some, you know, one-hit wonder or some has-been from the 70s that a friend of mine knew. Um, but I just knew we were soulmates when we met. And so there was that side of the fairy tale. What, like, what, what told, what, what, Kristen, what told you that? What, what, oh, what well, yelled at you? <laughs> It was actually a voice in my head. It's so cliche, but you, you've heard people say this, like they, when they met their future husband or wife, that they, they heard a voice saying, this is the man you're, you're going to marry or the woman you're going to marry. It was like that. I heard a voice in my head 20 minutes after meeting him. This is the man that you're meant to marry. Not that you're going to marry, but that you're meant to marry. And um, I just, you know, even if, not to be woo-woo, like even if you don't believe in any of that kind of woo-woo stuff, it, the type of person he was really was a perfect match for me because I was um, I was serious and sort of driven and really insecure and um, creative, but insecure about my dreams of being a writer and. Um, I loved older men, and Joe was older. He was super playful and silly, which, you know, as a kind of a serious, driven person, I, I, I totally love that. We really offset each other. He liked women like that. I think a lot of the women in his past were really sort of together and um, responsible and uh, strong women. What happened, though, was that, you know, I started using drugs with him pretty quickly, and um, not the first night or not even the first few months, but I had a history of addiction. I had quit meth already, and I was, um, I had a drinking problem that was pretty serious. I worked in a bar, so I um, was oh, in denial about it because everyone drank. But, um, you know, eventually I started using Coke because um, he slept all day, and if I wanted to be with this guy that I was having a long-distance relationship with, when I would go to L.A. or he would come to Austin, I told myself, well, I should just use a little Coke so I can stay up all night with him, make the most of our time together. And, you know, I, being the, you know, um, uh, potentially addictive person that I was, I mean, I, it very, I very quickly became addicted. And then when I moved in with him a couple years later, um, you know, I just went off the rails completely. But before that happened, before my coke use turned into crack use and the fighting and the screaming and the punching and the you know, three-day binges and the complete outrageousness. Um, before all that, I was having the time of my life. Like, I mean, I loved every minute with him. I was traveling around the world. I was meeting, you know, Beatles and um, hanging out with Jack Nicholson and the guys from The Who and, and Stevie Nicks was hanging out and, you know, giving me, you know, jewelry and yammering my ear off all night. Like, I, it was fun. The meeting the celebrities was fun. Having sort of my first um, close, I felt like, you know, Joe's friends were my friends. I was kind of an isolated person, and, and his friends were all really good to me. And I don't know, it was just, it was very exciting. It was, had, it was, we had a great time, yeah. You had a, a fabulous night at Stevie Nicks' house, as I remember. Stevie Nicks came over. She was absolutely gracious and charming and beautiful and wonderful and the goddess I always sort of imagined she would be. Like, I just adored her. Um, and I'm not like a fangirl, but I was, you know, always, a, as soon as I first saw her, laid eyes on her, I think on MTV, like in the 80s, I was just immediately a complete fangirl. And, and so one night she, um, she just called, she called Joe one night, she was in LA and she said, you know, um, I want to take you to dinner. And he said, well, I, you know, I'm I have a girlfriend. I'm, I'm living with someone now. And she goes, well, bring her. And um, so I was super excited, and I was very nervous to meet her because I had just found out that day that apparently she, you know, still kind of had a thing for Joe. But she was so sweet, and we had a wonderful dinner, and she was a little ditzy, um, but she was wonderful. And then we all went to the house afterwards, and um, a bunch of our friends came. And... Um, and then she just got ditzier and ditzier, and she started just talking and talking and making less and less sense, and eventually just wandered over to the piano, and she sat down, and she played, and she played, and she played, and, and eventually it's four in the morning, and Joe's looking at me like, you gotta get her out of the house, I wanna go to bed, and um, I had to try to con her to get her out of the house. It took, she was like the guest who wouldn't leave, but, she, but in a good way, like she was wonderful, but weird. <laughs> so how, how'd you finally get her out of there? 
You know what? We actually, um, uh, we, we kind of conned her. Um, so I went outside. It was the, the limo. Apparently, her limo driver had been in our driveway all night, and um, I know this because one of my friends finally cued me in. So um, we go out there, and the limo driver says, "Oh, okay, just get her out here, and I'll take it from there." So I told Joe this, and he comes up with some story, and he tells Stevie, you know, he convinces her to get up from the piano and go outside with him like he's going to show her something in the, you know, some something in the sky or something in our bushes, I don't know, but something really cool she had to see, and as soon as he got her out the door, the limo driver rushed up and just sort of ushered her into the car, and she just, you know, she was so dizzy that she just kind of let it happen, and uh, we're like, all right, bye, and we ran inside and closed the door. So it, it, it to you, was the first time this has ever happened? Um, well, it was the first time with her, for right. sure, but it wasn't the first time we had guests who stayed past 4 a.m. I mean, like, once a week our house was sort of... Okay, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec, but Stevie Nicks, um, the limo driver knew the drill. Oh, that, yeah. That was, was the, the drill. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, no, he totally knew, yeah. Okay. yeah he absolutely knew how to handle it, and... Um, uh, I'm sure that's what she's paying him for. And who else uh, wouldn't leave the Joe Walsh, uh, Kristen Casey um, uh, abode? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Well, you know, we had a lot of people, um, every now and then, just somebody who would just pop over, which was very cool. Um, Wolfman Jack just showed up one day. He was one of my favorite of Joe's friends, and he just... He treated me, you know, he was more interested in talking to me than to Joe, and he was just very complimentary, and he was, I don't know, kind of fascinating and very philosophical and fascinated by um, strong women and feminist topics, and, um, yeah, he was great. And then, um, uh, let's see, very generous with his cocaine as well. Um, let's see. Uh, st uh, Patrick Swayze came over one night, but I wasn't there that night, unfortunately, and he and Joe just hung out in the um, in the uh, garage studio all night making music. Um, I'm sorry, I missed that one. Let's see who else came over. Nina Blackwood showed up one day. She was she was actually really lovely, um, and I uh, at the time I, Joe had I was very paranoid that Joe was cheating on me with basically every woman. Um, that he was friends with, and so I, at the time, I thought, you know, I think maybe she's, they might be, they might be, there's something going on between them, and, and it's funny because I found out much later that they were old friends, and she was a little uncomfortable, but only probably because of the way, you know, we were a little wired, and, and, and I think it was showed, you know, that we were using really heavily, and um, uh, um, Harry, oh, Harry Nilsson, he, I showed up, um, I came home from school or came home from summer one day, and um, he was hanging out with Joe, sweetest man. Um, and were they making music? No, no, they were just hanging out looking for, some, looking for some equipment of Joe's that he wanted to show. And then Harry got sick. He was already kind of on, a, on the decline, you know, and he suddenly didn't feel well, and he had to go. Um, he died about a year later, in fact. Um, so far, far too soon, as we say. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. That soon. was a horrible loss. He was he was such a wonderful, gentle soul and an amazing musician. And um, you know, he looked he looked frail, um, a little delicate, but young. I mean, I I don't remember how old he was, but far too young to yep. to die of a heart condition. I don't know why fifty one sticks in my head, but I, I, I could totally be wrong. I, I think you're right. I think you're yeah. right. I think it was something like that. Well, yeah, Nina Hi. Black Nina Blackwood wouldn't leave my house either. Just to, just for the record. <laughs> I wish she would have stayed. I actually, she, funny enough, she and Stevie were, um, when I was growing up, when I was like, you know, 13, 14, and, and they first, MTV first showed up, I love those two, you know, just that sort of wild 80s gypsy chic kind of thing they had going on. And she was, um, you know, she was, a, Stevie wasn't what you would call down to earth. She had that sort of gypsy air about her, but Nina was like, she was very cool, but she was very down to earth, and she had this very cool job. And so when she came over, um, I had never, I didn't know that she and Joe were friends. And so when he said, oh, my really good friend Nina's on her way over, I thought he was lying. You know, like he was making this up, like, like they were actually having an affair, because he'd never mentioned her before. And, um, what I didn't realize till many years later was that a lot of times people did kind of give us strange looks and get uncomfortable around us, and I never could figure out why back then, but looking back now, I know it's because we were just, you know, manic. We were, 
we're on, you know, often up for two or three days at a time, and it showed. So, so as it turns out, they really were old friends from Cleveland, and she was just um, concerned about um, her friend, and so she didn't stay very long. You know, it's a very insulated world. When you, the rock star thing to begin with, but when you use that, use drugs the way we do, the way we did, um, you know, you only want people around you who are using as well. Otherwise, you know, the, even if even if they're not judging you, even if your clean friends aren't judging you, you see yourself through their eyes, and it's very uncomfortable for you. So we had a very sort of closed circle, and everybody, and almost everyone in our circle, was, um, you know, kind of doing what we were doing. Either that, or they were in, you know, Joe's band. So. Those are the only. So when did that? part of your life end? Did it end by get going, getting clean? Did it end by leaving and, and becoming less dependent on Joe? Uh, all of the above? Uh, where, where are we? Well, we split up in 93 because my coke use had turned to crack use and was completely out of control. And I was really at that point kind of delusional, you know, like it was fogging my thinking and I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I I just thought I was better off without him, and I moved away, and I moved to Vegas, and pretty quickly realized I still loved him. I just made a horrible mistake, and so we eventually got back together some months later. But like I said, he got sober the day that, the day after we got back together, and so I would go visit him um, in rehab every week, but he was a completely different guy. And then when the, you know, the Eagles started touring, his life was really getting back on track for the first time in like, uh, I think maybe 10 years of sort of his addictions really taking over and, and his career going downhill. And so he was just shooting up like a rocket health-wise and emotionally he was healing. And meanwhile, I had quit drugs because he wasn't providing them. I was not, I didn't have the money for drugs and I really alcohol was my first love, but I couldn't quit alcohol. And I had asked him about taking me to an AA meeting, but he just, um, you know, he didn't want to do that for some reason. And so, um, did you ever find out why? You know, I, well, <laughs> I, I don't know for sure. So I want to say that first of all, um, I do know that he met his, his next partner his, who became his wife um, in rehab so it's possible she was going to those meetings um, I, you know or pretty good yeah, guess I don't really know uh, to, to be yeah. honest I, I to me I I've never I've had a lot of people ask me to take him to a meeting people I know very well and very close with and people I barely know at all and I've never said no to well I did say no once um, but I don't know. I, for whatever reason, Joe had his reasons, and I don't know what they are. And I, I try to be very careful in the book and in life, um, presuming anything um, about what he's thinking. I can just tell you what he did, and then you know you have to ask him why he did some things. But he, yeah, he didn't. He didn't take me to a meeting, and so I just started um, getting worse. And I decided, well, when it was over for good, when he broke up with me for good, you know, he finally kind of dragged on for a while, and he finally mustered up the courage to say, "Look, we gotta. It's over. I don't love you anymore." You know, he was kind about it, but it shattered me. And I was um, 27, and I had a horrible drinking problem. I was heavily in debt, and I just did not see a purpose for me in the world anymore. You know, I'd wanted to be a writer, and I'd, um, I, I was, I had some raw talent, and I, um, but I had thrown away school. I had a free ride at UT that I just completely um, blew. I dropped out of college three times. And uh, at that point, I couldn't focus. I couldn't go back to school because I was such a bad alcoholic. So I just thought, really, I couldn't afford rehab. And back then, the only thing really available was AA. And I, I kind of got the feeling I was going to, AA was going to turn me into like a PTA um, uh, a suburban housewife or something, which makes no sense because I don't have kids. But I just, it, I didn't really understand what it was about, and I thought it was going to make life very boring. And so I just thought, I, I'm never going to be the writer I want to be. I'll never, you know, my life will never be as good as it was with Joe. And, you know, I was very depressed and, and a little delusional and completely addicted to alcohol. So I just decided to continue drinking as much as I could till I died. Oh, boy. And uh, two years later, I almost did. I came... Within, um, I had alcohol poisoning really badly. I'd had it a couple times before, but I had it so badly that I, um, it, it was really touch and go for most of that day. But I, um, you know, I lived through it. And over the course of that day, I, I had a, a lot of time to think because I couldn't move and I couldn't speak and um, I couldn't get up and get a drink. I was like kind of comatose. And I just thought about it and I realized 
you know, this is not how I meant to go. Right. I've been, been in denial about that. And um, so I called a, a girl that I worked with. I was stripping at this club in Vegas, and there were a lot of sober strippers there. And um, funny enough, and uh, she um, got me to a meeting, and I hated it, but um, I kept going. And um, I eventually... Uh, got sober and stayed sober, and I uh, I learned some coping skills that helped me build a new life. And um, yeah, so it took a while. Um, my next book is actually going to be a little bit about that process because the damage that I did to my not just my body but my sort of emotional state and my um, my ability to connect with people. I'd really detached from the world. So my process getting sober was quite a journey and a struggle. There was a lot of you know, switching addictions. I was, I had an eating disorder. I was a workaholic. I was, um, uh, you had the, uh, the list in uh, the list in alphabetical order. Our guest okay. today on True Crime Uncensored, Kristen uh, Casey, who, um, was with Joe Walsh for many, many years and is recounting those years and, and, uh, the ups and the downs of that time. This is True Crime Uncensored. I'm Howard Lapidus. Mark uh, C.G. Boyer, uh, our fact checker and, uh, uh, second chair today is with us and uh, and we're talking to Kristen about, about this just an incredible up and down roller coaster ride uh, that she had uh, in the days with Joe Walsh and coming out uh, to the days after Joe Walsh. True Crime Uncensored talking about a book called Rock Monster which is not really a true crime book but heck the conversation's damn interesting and it doesn't have to be about true crime um, because we said so and we uh, enjoy uh, enjoy you being with us today. Talk about you're setting the, the the footing for the next book and talking about what happened to you after you got clean and sober, after you were away from Joe Walsh. You were a stripper in Vegas. That, that part uh, I found interesting, but I'm not going to embarrass you there. But uh, maybe not. Oh, I, I love talking about my stripping years. Okay, then go ahead and talk about your stripping yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a stripper in total in my life for 14 years. Um, I did it in three spurts, lasting five years, five years, and four years. And I um, stripped in the um, 80s and 90s. I stripped again in the, um, uh, let's see, I started in 86 and went to 91, then went to the late 90s. I started, or the mid-90s, I guess, 90 to 98 and then when I was in my late 30s I was a realtor and I'd had a really long dry spell and I just uh, went back I thought temporarily to just kind of help bring in some extra cash and it, I ended up making twice as much money stripping at 39 and 40 as I as I was making as a realtor um, you know I could work three days a week and make the same money I was making what what kind of money are we talking about well um if I was working full time, it probably would it would have been six figures. But I was only you know it's when you're I had a bad back and I couldn't work like five days a week. I could only work like three days a week. Plus I was doing both jobs because I didn't want to quit real estate, you know, and, and I wanted to continue like building that career. But then the recession happened, and real estate just tanked. And you know I thought, well, I'm, I really need to throw myself into writing, and I can strip three two or three days a week and spend all the rest of my time writing. And I'd had a lot of short pieces published by then so I thought well this is a gift you know this is what I'll do the problem is I hurt my back even worse and then the recession um, seeped into the stripping industry and really changed it I mean things started getting very sort of hairy and the boundaries you know girls were just dropping their boundaries in order to make a buck and the management was not doing anything about it and it just got to be very what what were the boundaries and what were they doing well you know when I started stripping in 86 was it 86? Yes. Um, it was at Sugars in Austin, and there was no touching. I mean, none. The guys kept their hands at their sides, and, you know, when you got up to dance, you could touch their knees and sort of open their legs, and then that was the space between their legs in front of their chair was like your little stage. And you could prop your knee against their knee, and you could put your hand on the chair and lean over to do, so, you know, some of those, like, swooping moves. But um, but there was no touching. There was no grinding. There was no um, licking and sucking and grabbing and twisting and, and you know, none of that. Um, by the time I left Vegas, um, you know, those, rule, those rules had changed. However, Vegas was such big money that you could actually sort of... Um, set your own boundaries, and if you weren't, if you didn't want to be touched or touched much, 
um, or touched only with hands, not mouths, you know, that kind of thing, you could still make a good living. Um, and if you did um, have wide boundaries, you could make a great living. I made six figures for sure, easily, in Las Vegas. That was a, I made a killing in Vegas. Um, and then... Um, but so, what, so, what were, so what were the lack, what was the lack of boundary? I, mean, I know, well, I'm, I know okay. I'm, I'm getting into a, a, a kind of a strange area here, but that's me. It. Yeah. No, I don't mind talking about it at all. I, listen, I think it's refreshing to talk about this kind of stuff. I think that we should be talking about this kind of stuff. Everybody's afraid to talk about anything sexual, and, and I think that that's... Well, that's well, well, Kristen, we're not afraid. Go. Yeah. So, okay. So, by the time I left Vegas, this is what the situation was pretty much. There, I was working the mid-shift. I, I can't speak to the night shift or the day shift, but I would work from 1 to 9, sometimes to midnight. So, uh, there might be 50 or, or more girls, dancers, working on that shift. And, um, and it was one of the top clubs, so it was an upscale club. And there, there would... Out of 50 girls, there would at least be probably two that, if you paid them well enough, you could probably penetrate them in the VIP room. But it was very sneaky. Like, it was not out in the open, right? Like, you know, there's always – in fact, that's kind of the normal – in strip clubs, you've always got a couple of outliers who are going to be like – you know, um, pushing those boundaries. But if the vast, if 90 or 95 percent of your girls are behaving, then that's just the way it is. It actually ends up working in the club's favor. Um, it was it was like that even back in the 80s in Austin. So, but the rest, but w the problem was the rest of the dancers. This is 97, 98. The boundaries were getting crossed. I mean, if you didn't allow a, a, a customer to. Um, put his hands on your butt and hands on your breasts and probably his mouth on your nipples, um, at least some of them. They didn't all try, but, you know, you weren't going to make $1,000 a day. Um, and, you, you know, I think most of the girls were making five, 600 or more a, a day on that shift. Um, but if you push those boundaries, you could make a thousand a night, which I did. The problem was, I was—it was my first addiction after I got clean and sober was money, and so it was that was how I valued myself. That was what I used to change the way I felt about myself. And I didn't understand—I didn't know how to set boundaries, and I didn't value myself enough to do it. So my last year and a half stripping. Those boundaries got crossed. Like there were hands on my butt, hands on my breasts, mouths on my breasts all the time. And then I would go home and I would just, I would just take a, you know, I count all my money, and then I wouldn't spend any of it. I hoarded it, and then I would just take a hot shower and stare at the wall till I fell asleep. And so I eventually thought, well, this is not healthy. And if I'm going to be clean and sober, I need to, you know, really, I need to get therapy and I need to work on myself. And so I quit stripping, and I flew, I, I moved back to Austin and became a realtor. Um, unfortunately, it really didn't suit me that well, and so I eventually... Going back to stripping was actually a great move for me about eight years later. I, um, where where you know, were you then? I was back in Austin, and it's, you know, it's really funny. People think real estate is such a, um, I don't know, um, um, respectable job, but you do all this work for free. And, you know, people, I don't know if it, it may have changed by now, but realtors were run ragged. I mean, it was just, to me, it was the most exploitive job I've ever had. It was, in, people call stripping exploitative, but by far, real estate was much worse. Did you, did you, went, did you ever think to do a strip realty uh, without a workshop for you? <laughs> No, that never occurred to me, and I gotta say, I don't think that would fly. Okay, so yeah. to speak. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. But I like the way you think. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So when I got back into it, it would have been uh, see October 2006, and uh, it was great. You know, I was make I was getting paid for my work. I'd kind of forgotten what that was like. You know, I'd been working for free for six months. You know, driving buyers all around town who never bought anything, paying four dollars. Uh, a gallon for gas, gas. Right. and so I go back to stripping, and all of a sudden I'm getting making five hundred dollars a day at thirty nine, and I'm having a ball. I love the atmosphere. I love so the music. Speak. I love being surrounded by. I love being in an atmosphere where sexuality is celebrated. And I know that there are some issues. You know, I'm a feminist, and I really do believe that there's, you know, um, there's a. It's not so much what you do; it's how you do it. And there is a way to be objectified consensually. 
and also respectfully. I mean, I, I was being compensated very well by men who were Marcus, um, Marcus. wanting to indulge in that sense of femininity and feel like um, not have to oh hide or be ashamed or feel like their their desires um and their sexual self is some sort of burden or some sort of shameful thing you know the atmosphere in a strip club is it's all consensual everybody knows what it's about it's closed off we're all adults we're all having a good time and if i'm being paid well and they're abiding my boundaries it was perfectly healthy i by then i knew how to set boundaries so for me that's the key to stripping well you were you were you were a 500 dollars a day stripper as opposed to a thousand back then yeah, making a thousand in 2007 or 2008. I mean, some of the night girls might have been making that much. Some of the Russian girls. I mean, those girls are like machines. Like, yeah, some of the those Eastern Bloc strippers, you can't touch them. Um, they were probably a few of them making a thousand dollars a night. But often you say machine. Like you say machine. What do you really mean by that? I mean, like they are. Um, okay, remember in that? You remember in Jaws when that guy? can't think of his name, but he was the one on the boat who ended up dying. The, Robert uh, Shaw. Maybe Robert Shaw. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when he was describing sharks, how their eyes are cold and they all they do is eat. And they Doll's eat, eyes. Eat, and they, yeah, that's what it's like. These girls, they're, and I'm not saying they're like that at home or with their kids or with their boyfriends or whatever, but when they're working... They just have their eye on the prize, and nothing gets in the way. They just don't even concern themselves with the drama in the dressing room and the drama all over the place. And, you know, they just, they don't have, they're not emotional. They're not like, oh, poor me, nobody's paying attention. They just go out there, and they hit it, and they make it, and they make the money, and they don't, they don't. Dra I mean, I, I have nothing but awe for them. Uh, I do. A drama, I, yeah. drama in the dressing room. Talk to me about that. Oh, God, it's just, well, you know, you get a bunch of women in, in a room, and um, there's always going to be a little bit of drama. Um, there's just, uh, there, is, there is a sense of sisterhood as well, I will say, but it's competitive. Um, it's the kind of work that um, is very personal. There's a very personal edge to it. So say you're... You're a woman who's been raised and socialized, as all women are, to believe that your value rests very much in your um, sex appeal and your beauty and what you look like um, versus what you, what you do or how smart you are. So um, that's a kind of tenuous place to get your esteem and your, um, and your sense of self-value. Um, and even if you're beyond that and you're just using stripping as a way to make a living, it's hard not you're, – you're put in an environment where we're all – there's X amount of dollars and there's X amount of – or Y amount of strippers. And, you know, whoever is um, the best at what she does, and that has a little to do with beauty and a little to do with hustle and a little to do with smarts, but – you know, you, you can't get blood out of a turnip. So if it's a slow day and you've got 20 or 30 or 40 strippers, um, it's not just about, you know, I'm not making enough money because, you know, the other girls are faster or better right. or whatever. Right. It's about, oh, I'm not, I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not sexy enough. And they, if that happens, you know, if, if you're going through a slump or whatever, 2008 was a recession. So, you know, it's... Kristen, we will get into that after our break. Yeah. Our guest is uh, Kristen Casey. Uh, her book is Rock Monster. We talk about uh, her life and her life with uh, rock legend Joe Walsh on True Crime Uncensored. I'm Howard Lapidus along with Mark C.G. Boyer, and we'll be back in 60 seconds. interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device and it's all free just go to your friendly app store and search for outlaw radio then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it it's free listen free on the road in your car at the beach or in your backyard it's all free from outlaw radio this is buddy twist saying good night from hollywood Back to True Crime Uncensored. 
without Burl Bear. Burl Bear, uh, how about this one? Uh, his latest excuse is uh, the, his cab canceled. Now, this is a new one because I've never heard of such a thing, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, his cab canceled. With Burl Bear and yes. Howard Lapidus. Yes, I am here. My cab did not cancel. And happy to be here with Mark C.G. Boyer, who we'll talk about in just a, about a second. Um, our guest today, uh, Kristen Casey. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. Told you. I'm over here in the corner. Told you. Kristen Casey wrote a book called Rock Monster. She uh, talks about her uh, oh, near decade with uh, rock legend Joe Walsh and their ups, their downs, uh, their highs, their lows, so to speak, and then her highs and her lows, and then uh, about her writing career, about writing all about it in this book, Rock Monster, which is now available. Kristen, uh, talk to me about getting set for your second book. Oh, yeah, sure. So... One of the things I did with Rock Monster was one of my goals, and maybe even my top goal with this, was to explain the crazy. I wanted to, I remembered very well, I still remember very well what was going on in my head during those crazy years, why I was acting so insane, because I was someone from a, you know, a middle class, uh, quote unquote, typical loving home. Um, my parents were overworked, they had a lot of kids, and um uh, I was a very sensitive child, and my mom and I had a tough time of it. So there was a lot of, for me, there was a lot of um, stress. Where, and, where, did you, um, where did you grow up? In San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. Um, so the, what I wanted to do with this book was explain what is going on inside the head of an addict, because I, in particular, got a lot of looks like, why is this girl who comes from you know a, a non-physically abusive home, uh, going off the rails so quickly because I did, you know, my addiction started actually in high school, and they and I noticed that really, really quickly. And I had, a, like I said, a free ride given to me basically at UT. I was a very smart and ambitious person, and yet I, <laughs> uh, you know, I threw it all away. And there's a reason for that. I wanted to. I feel like we've made a lot of progress in understanding more about the disease, but what we're understanding more about what's happening inside the addict, and that's important. We're understanding uh, some from brain scans technology. We're understanding more from some personal accounts, like my memoir. This is what I was thinking and feeling. This is where it came from. Most addiction memoirs that I read don't talk much about their childhood, and when they do, they very carefully sort of avoid getting too personal, usually because their parents are still alive. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but the truth is, I've never met an addict whose problems didn't start, whose, whose addictions didn't stem from some sort of childhood trauma, whether it was something as, as uh, common as a divorce, even an amicable divorce. If you're an especially sensitive child, that can cause the kind of stress and anxiety that changes the way your brain works. And if your parents are overworked and you're not getting the attunement and the affection and the nurturance and that sense of safety and sense of being loved as a child, you know, it, it, maybe there was no one big incident, no molestation, or no no physical well, abuse. Didn't you didn't you find didn't you find that was very common uh, um, amongst some of the people that you got uh, clean with that uh, that oh, physical yeah. abuse was almost number one on the list? Well, physical abuse is common. I mean, it's abuse and sexual abuse are are more common than most people realize. I've never been sexually abused, and I was not physically abused at all. Um, but. Uh, the, that's kind of why I wrote, I wrote this book because there are a lot of people in the, who are um, who have problems with addiction or intimacy issues because these two things are entwined and that's what I'm getting to um, that didn't have abuse sexual or physical or otherwise but may have, I mean I don't know there, a perfect example is that book Tweak by uh, Nick Chef, Chef and his father David Chef wrote the book he had an ideal childhood but there was a divorce it was I think somewhat amicable but he was such such a sensitive child that it just threw his whole childhood into a, um, a instability and he was a, a terrible addict and so these are the stories if we're going to someday prevent addiction because that's our only shot we can't keep trying to treat it we're not treating it very well treating treatment is helpful but it's expensive and it doesn't work all that well it only works for a small percentage and it's you know the the percentages are are absolutely horrible and it's a it's an epidemic and so if we don't learn how to prevent it we're never going to make much more progress and if we don't understand what's causing it then we're not going to know how to prevent it and you know we've we've figured out some of the genetics some of the neurobiological um uh 
the neurology of it, the, the biomechanics of it, you know, some of it is um, what's happening in the brain, um, how much do the drugs cause, how much, we need to, we need to start spotting it sooner. Um, there are children who have anxiety in childhood that we could be spotting if we were paying more attention. So when I wrote the book, I didn't talk a lot about my childhood, but probably in a dozen places, I go back to some issues in my childhood, some incidences that set me up with these insecurities and these, this, this desperate need to, um, to fill this hole that I had in me with something. I, I, was, I was putting up walls, emotional walls, as a child to protect myself from the tension in my home and the anger and the depression that I was getting from my mother and the, and the hypercriticalness that, oh, you know, my mother's a wonderful woman who was overworked and depressed. And so as a child, I took all that in and I, I put up these emotional walls, walled myself off from my feelings so I could protect myself. And when I did that, I turned off all my access to joy and connection and intimacy and attunement and love. And, um, and so when I started using, not only was I numbing my depression, but I was trying to access my positive feelings because I could not feel them otherwise. And this is the part we're not talking about. So that's why I wrote the book. When I write the next one, the 12-step program, it got me sober and it laid a foundation for me to finally cope with life, see my issues, and do my best to continue getting better emotionally and mentally and physically. That involved a lot of steps. Um, I had a lot of therapy. Um, yoga, exercise, um, all kinds of uh, nutritional help, um, but it was a long process. I, was, I had suicidal ideation for four or five years. I had um, daily crying jags, horrible crying jags. I had terrible insomnia. Um, so, um, but my biggest issue was that I had disconnected so effectively when I was trying to kill myself from everyone and everything except one sister that I had to slowly, slowly, slowly reconnect. I had to learn how to make friends again. I had to learn how to look people in the eye again. Dating, oh my God, like that was the slowest process ever. It was, and it was because I had shut myself off from anything that felt intimate or connected as much as I wanted because to me, it, I associated it with pain and rejection. How many, how many siblings did you have or do you have? I had um, four siblings. There were five of us total. And, and um, the, yeah. the, let's talk about the relationship. We'll talk about them in a second. But let's talk about your father. Did you have any kind of relationship with him at all? I had a wonderful relationship with my father. My father um, is, and I feel really, really blessed for this. My parents are both great people. My dad and my mom are very different people. My dad lives in joy. He, um, he, he's a glass half full guy. He is playful. He delighted in me. He made me feel loved. He made me feel appreciated. He laughed at my jokes. You know, he looked forward to seeing me at, you know, when he came home from work and on the weekends. You know, my dad brought a lot of joy to the house. Um, and he and my mom actually kind of made a good couple. It, much like Joe and, Joe and myself, um, my dad was the playful one, the big dreamer, you know, the entrepreneur. And mom was, you know, sort of disciplined and grounded. And um, so they, they tempered each other. They were a really good team that way. And they're very much in love. But they married like at 21 and 22 and started having kids right away. And they had five, four kids in the first seven years of their marriage. And so my mom was like 20, 28, um, I think when she had four toddlers running around and a full-time job, a high-stress job as an emergency room nurse. It's way too much for any one person. And, you know, she was sort of a perfectionist, and she was a good Catholic girl, and, you know, there's a lot of expectation that comes with that, and therapy is not, you know, nobody recommended therapy back then. Just tough it up, you know, tough it out. And so, um, you know, she was just tense a lot. And I, as a child, I took that to mean there was, she didn't love me, so there was something wrong with me. Right. And, um... You know, this, the truth is I know my mother loved me and loves me, um, but this is a pattern that you see, I can't, I mean, it's everywhere. The overworked parent who doesn't realize that the, 
one or some of their children are very sensitive and they are not feeling loved and that they're going to start acting out. You, you, uh, you, you keep going back to your mother. You, you, you gloss over your father. Uh, yeah, good, my dad, uh, good. here's the thing with my dad. So my relationships with men do parallel my relationship with my dad. Most of my relationships with men have the same dynamic. Men, I meet these men who, they're not emotionally unavailable. They're very emotionally available. They are playful. They are full of joy. They, um, they think I hung the moon. They make me feel loved. They make me feel appreciated and cherished. But they're not there for me emotionally when I need them. So you were looking for, you, you're, you're looking for your father. Yeah, 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 like, you know, my dad, is, everybody has a, you know, their own, their fatal flaw. Nobody's perfect. And my dad, um, you know, he wasn't the, like a knight in shining armor when, when my mother and I would be having um, a standoff, my dad would just sort of leave us to it. He didn't come and rescue me. And so um, that was, I had a great relationship with my dad, but that was, that was a bit wounding. And so I went through most of my life expecting to never be protected. So, so, to, so um, your, your relationship yeah. with Joe, how close was that to the relationship you had with your father? Well, Joe was super playful. He made me feel like completely adored and cherished and loved and very special. And, um, but in that same way that he was more present and available to me or for me when I was, um, when I was not needy or, um, needing to lean on him, you know, um, so what I started doing with Joe was the same thing I did with my dad, which was, you know, always show him my bright side, my happy side, um, never, um, never really talk about my needs or what's wrong or I'm scared, you know. And so Joe and I had terrible communication. We didn't, neither of us were talking about um, having those hard conversations about uh, what we needed, you know, our, our, um, our incompatibilities, what I, you know, um, he needed me to grow up a little bit and be more responsible and I needed him to grow up and be more responsible. But we weren't saying that. We were actually egging each other on to just being very immature drug addicts. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, I, I had this sense that if I ever was my authentic self, if I ever was open about my fears and my, um, my emotional needs, that, that he would just tune me out, um, because that's kind of, you know, what my dad did. But that was, that was almost, that was almost 10 years with him, with Joe Walsh. Yeah, well, it was six years over a seven-year period. But I have to say, it was also the greatest. You know, when you when you have um, that kind of dynamic, whether it's with a friend, a sibling, a partner, a husband, a father, it forces you to dig deep within yourself and and uh, take charge of your life. You know, like all I had to do when I was with Joe, I didn't have the strength to do it until we broke up. But all I had to do was say, I need to talk. We have issues. I know this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation, but there are things we need to talk about and change and fix. I needed to set boundaries. I needed to say, I, you know, um, um, I'm unsatisfied or I'm afraid or I'm whatever. And I wouldn't do any of those things. I always tried to be um, just happy and um, sexy and, um, you know, uh, I was always trying to be the perfect girlfriend. Did you did you ever did you ever want to have kids with either Joe or anybody else? No, no, I've never wanted children ever. Okay, Mark C. G. Yeah, Boyer is sitting here with, uh, just uh, dying to get a question, in, and I'm going to let you. Him do uh, uh, if you had gotten sober when Joe got sober, would you guys still be together? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I've I've wondered that myself, and I, this is what I think. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that we would have stayed together, and I think that we would probably have gotten married because we were engaged, and I think that we would have tried really hard to make it work, and that we would have gotten divorced within probably five years. And, yeah. and the divorce would have happened because? Because I'm someone who just personally, my what drives me, what satisfies me, what fulfills me is not being the partner of a creative person and being that supportive, nurturing part, you know, and that's a very fulfilling role. I don't want to denigrate that in any way. 
there are women out there who um, you have to be strong to be a partner with someone like Joe, especially once he got sober and he was traveling the way he was. He needed a partner at his side to really be his support system. And um, I'm not that person. I'm the person in the relationship who's got the ambition and the drive and the goals. And I, you know, I... I want to, I'm, you know, I wanted to write my books and write my stories and write screenplays, and I wanted, I wanted to be in the position that Joe was in. What I need is a partner who's got a lot of nurturing, supportive instincts. You know, my last boyfriend 10 years ago was, he was a really macho guy, but he was so romantic and so just sort of open emotionally, and he was very nurturing, and um, so we had that dynamic. Like, I was working two jobs, and he was working one, but he was always the one who was making sure that, you know, I felt loved, and that we did fun stuff, and that, you know, I was eating right, and um, so that's... That was ten ten years ago, and nobody since then? Yeah. Oh, nobody, no long-term, you know, I've dated, um, like, shorter-term guys, but I, I haven't really been in love since um, my boyfriend 10 years ago, no. There you go. The book is called Rock Monster. Ah. It is, uh, in fact, available uh, where uh, fine books are sold, correct? Amazon, uh, etc. All the usual yeah, places. All the bookstores and um, online, uh, yes, all of them. And you were going to tell us what the title refers to. Oh, yeah, thank you for asking. Because, and I, you know, I, I always worried about this. That title was supposed to be a working title, and it's kind of a play on words, but I assumed that my publisher would have a better idea. And he was like, no, no, I love this. We're going to go with this. And I thought, well, I don't want anyone to think I'm calling Joe a monster because the title is actually referring to me. Okay, so my boyfriend was a rock star, and I was addicted to crack rocks. I mean, that, towards the, uh, you know, um, the, the, the worst part of my story, I, w- I was terribly addicted to crack. Monster was our pet name for each other. That's what we called each other when we were being outrageous. Like, whenever we would stay up for two or three days at a time, we'd just kind of look at each other like, oh, my God, you're such a monster, or, boy, did we monster last weekend, or whatever. It just, it was a term meaning, you know, someone who's just gone off the deep end with drugs and partying. But it was, like, an affectionate term. So and, um, so he has you know, no, he, has, he uh, Joe Walsh has no problem with the uh, title. Oh, I have no idea. I haven't talked to him. Oh, there you go. I just didn't want anyone, I didn't want any one of your listeners to think I'm calling him a monster because monster was my pet name for him. He was the rock star and a a, a drug monster, you know. I I got it. And and that is, in fact, the name of the book. Kristen Casey, thank you very, very much for an hour that went extraordinarily fast. Uh, you carried it, and I thank you for doing that for me. Uh, Rock Monster is uh, is available, as we said, and, and my goodness, uh, a lot of fun. We will have you back at some point, in some place, in some fashion. This is LL Radio. Thanks. Howard, what's next? Thank you so much. You said Mark what? what Howard, you? what's next? Howard, what's next? Yeah. Magic Matt L, the Demons and Decadence, and Outlaw Radio is next on this, the very Outlaw Radio Network. We'll see you in a sec.